HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Welcome back. First show of 2015 and an exciting one at that with Marianne Cause and the Modern Art Cookbook. I mean, it couldn't have had a better first show of 2015 because, you know, the, the impetus of the show was showing the intersections of food, art, and design. This is it exactly. I mean, this is it so absurdly that... We should have just restarted the show, and this should have been number one. That's so nice. <laughs> That's wonderful. Because the the core of this cookbook isn't just about recipes. It's about how words and art and visuals and all these senses interact with both palettes, you know, uh, the one in the roof of our mouth yeah. and the visual sense, you know, from hues and tonality. Um, your background obviously is is fantastically suited to this topic but a scottish southerner yeah that's right (laughs) (laughs) who lives a lot of her life in france so yeah there's there's not a lot of scottish stuff in here there's a lot of french it's all sort of oriented towards provence and that because my former cookbook was called provencal cooking and that was just such fun so i just thought that was such fun i'll do another one and i've loved doing this book michael really a joy all of it. Has your work or your life always kind of been associated with more the arts or food, at, or has it been at that intersection? More at the arts, yeah. literature, text. And so the, you know, the idea of food writing to me is just fascinating. And I love Elizabeth David and MFK Fisher, and I used to read them uh, to my children, you know, reading about plums and reading about everything, reading about Provence when we were living in Provence. And my children in tents would hear me reading 
all this stuff. But I think the art part is incredibly important. I mean, what brought you to Provence? Was it the art or was it the food and the scenery? No, it was because I was in love with a French poet. (laughs) And I do a lot of translating of French poetry. And so it all became part of living there and eating there and seeing things there. And, you know, I do teach French stuff. So it all made part of a wonderful interconnection. I mean, you talk about wonderful authors like Elizabeth David, even Alice Toklas. Um, Reading their recipes or reading their prose, I mean, that is poetry. Absolutely, absolutely. And the way they write is so remarkable. So I love the recipes. I love Cezanne. This book actually began, Michael, because of... Uh, a painting in the Met uh, Cezanne and it's a ginger pot and and eggplant and so I thought hey you know wouldn't it be fun to see what he ate and what he actually ate every day when he went out to cook and to paint I mean she cooked at, uh, his cook cooked but he ate eggplant with anchovies rolled up in it and I thought, that's impossible. And then we went to Collure, the great anchovy place, and to be sure, that's what people eat, eggplant with anchovies. And the ginger was something else. But that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to associate what I loved seeing with what I love eating and writing about and reading about. So it's all part of a mishmash. Yeah, I mean, obviously Cezanne and the still lives, Dutch alcoves. All of that. There, there's been so much food within art for the years, and... You know, prior to your book, has there been an exploration or was this very investigative for you? I hope it was investigative. I wanted to do it for years and then we couldn't find a publisher. And finally, this wonderful reaction, we've done a lot of my books, said, yeah, we'll do it. And it was just a great joy. took three years to get the permissions, though. So standing at the Met, seeing Cezanne's painting, you were inspired, but not specifically about just him as an artist, about art as a whole. Art, still life as a whole, still life and what it is that that the still life painters pictured. A lot of fruit, of course. There are a lot of fruit desserts in here because of that and all that kind of thing. But Cezanne, to me, was the most interesting uh, developer of the way we look at something and then eat it. His favorite dish was actually... Uh, just potatoes and olive oil, which I love too. Yeah. But he had that kind of Provençal adoration of that kind of food that I have too. And I think that's what really inspired a lot of the things in here. And it's funny, you talk about, you know, a palate and it changes per artist. And I mean, palate in both yes, senses here sure, too. Sure. And, you know, he was replete of aubergines. So that's Absolutely. why there was eggplant in the That's everything. right. That's why. Anchovies as well. So how, how did you see that shift when you went to someone? like Picasso over in Spain. Well, I had such fun with Picasso because, of course, I went to Barcelona and ate in that place. They all ate of Quatre Gats. And so a lot of those recipes, his recipe for herb soup, his recipe for uh, sangria, all of those things are in here. And I had to translate a lot from the French because they weren't in English, so I had to do a lot of translating of the of the Cezanne and the Picasso recipes and a lot of others, and that was fun too. You know, how you adapt those for an American palette, or I didn't do a lot of adaptation. I just put them the way they were, and people seemed to like them. I mean, how you adapt the tone, too. There's an amazing recipe in here, because my senior thesis at art school was actually about Italian futurists, and I set yeah. out to cook a futurist <laughs> meal and did you know, a couple things out of the book. But 
there's a recipe for green rice here yes. by Marionetti. Yes. And the, the tone of that recipe itself is, is fantastic because it's almost British in how, it, how it's, you know, stated. You do this, you do this, and then it's done. Yeah. I mean, there's no measurement. It, That's right. Why would you measure? Yeah. You don't have to. You just do it and eat. It's experiential. Yeah. So did you kind of set a specific tone that was akin to the kind of art that they painted. I hope I did. That's a wonderful way to put it, and I hope I hope that's exactly what I did. What was fun was that, of course, you had to match the uh, the painting with the recipe. So I remember once my wonderful editor said, um, "Could you by tomorrow?" I was then in Paris. Could you by tomorrow get me a dessert recipe for pears? By tomorrow, right? And they had to be from some famous painter or musician or something. So I said, what about Eric Satie's trois pièces en forme de poire? So three pieces in the form of a pair. So he put in the musical score. So it was so wonderful to be able to adapt whatever you were doing to what you really wanted to do. There was no, there was no strict thing about you've got to have a recipe. You could have a poem instead about the thing that you wanted to show. So it, everything seemed to work to me that way. I mean, you even had pairings of visual artists like yeah. Georgia O'Keeffe and Wild To be asparagus. sure, and asparagus, that's yeah. wonderful. And then about potatoes, so we have Bertolt Brecht's wife, uh, who gave the recipe for that film. So you have a film, and then you have a picture of the film, and then you have the recipe for what they were eating in the film. So there, there was no, I felt no shortcoming of excitement about this book. And I mean, every single thing I love doing. I mean, it, it blows my mind because you, you can almost, you know, transport yourself to the person's studio. And the first I one that so. really <laughs> did that for me was Helen Frankenthaler's hors d'oeuvres, yes. which were simply the easy one mushroom caps filled yes. with caviar. Yes. I mean, which sounds delightfully decadent. Yes. <laughs> Delightfully done. I love it. <laughs> but where did you find that recipe? Where was that extracted from? I found it. Where did I find that? Oh, my goodness. Do I know where I found it? Oh, yes. I found it in a book. Um, hmm. I found it in a modern art. The Museum of Modern Art did a cookbook. And then it went out of print immediately. And so um, Robert Motherwell's next wife, uh, his widow, gave me the modern art cookbook and then in that I found the Frankenthaler recipe and a lot of others, which was sort of exciting to find. My favorite recipe in all of here, Michael, and my very favorite is the Frida Kahlo, the, it's the a, red it's a fish recipe. Yes, style. and yeah. it's so hot. The red peppers in there, I had to grind them up, and the guy in the, when I was making it, the guy in Provence said, well, you know, those are very hot. Just <laughs> use a little tiny bit. So I use a mortar and pestle, and I ground up a little tiny bit. It's superb. Superb. So everything in here that's very spicy is superb. Yeah. I mean, I'm dying to try that one. I'm a big fan of that Veracruz style. Yeah. But even more so, hearing the red of chilies and that's knowing right. Frida Kahlo's work. That's I mean, right. There's, there's such signifiers in both the food as well as... I think so. So we use the paintings that would go along with, uh, with that kind of spice, you know, which makes sense. I tried to match the the art with the spice in the food. Another one that really kind of rang true to me was Picasso's Scramble and Sea Urchins. Is that fun? Yes, yes. I love Sea Urchins. Yeah. And, I mean, he he obviously grew up in a place where Sea Urchin was abundant, so it wasn't, you know, a larf. It wasn't some crazy recipe. And you remember when he visited Dali, so uh, in Caracas, 
And Dali's favorite thing, of course, was sea urchins. I mean, to make him really happy, you would feed him a whole thing of sea urchins, a whole, just a whole feast of sea urchins. And so that seemed to me very important. So when I did the Dali recipes in here, uh, those aren't the ones I use, but it seemed to me really great to have the Picasso Dali Provence, uh, you know, Spain, Barcelona, all of that is is this, you use the word tone, it's that kind of tone that I wanted to get into it. See, it's funny, I always thought Dali's favorite food was eggs. Yeah. Just because, and there, there's an image of eggs on a plate without a plate in, right. in the book. But That's right. But I feel like everything, even persistence of, uh, of memory, um, everything kind of looks like a sunny side up egg, That's a fried funny. sunny side up egg, just like hanging over a branch or, or a mushroom up. a sort of drooping mushroom yeah and elizabeth david writes wonderfully about mushrooms so that's what i have what eight pages of mushrooms have a lot of vegetarian stuff so a lot of egg a lot of mushroom because i wanted i have a vegetarian child and i wanted very much to be able <laughs> <laughs> to have her use the cookbook well let's talk about what is usually thought of as a, a benign vegetable the cucumber, yes. which just exudes such personality in, in, All in, of it. in, in poetry. And there's a wonderful Robert Haas piece. I, I'd love for you to maybe read it. Oh, can read I read it? it? Yes, please. Yeah. It's called Poem with a Cucumber in it. <clears throat> and he very kindly gave it to me. I think he's a great poet and a good friend. Sometimes from this hillside, just after sunset, the rim of the sky takes on a tinge of the palest green, like the flesh of a cucumber when you peel it carefully. In Crete once in the summer, when it was still hot at midnight, we sat in a taverna by the water, watching the squid boats rocking in the moonlight, drinking retzina and eating salads of cool chopped cucumber and yogurt and little dill. A hint of salt, something like starch, something like an atta of grasses, or green leaves on the tongue is the tongue and the cucumber evolving toward each other. Since cumbersome is a word, cumber must have been a word, lent to us, lost to us now, and even then for a person feeling encumbered, it must have felt orderly and right-minded to stand at a sink and slice a cucumber. If you think I'm going to make a sexual joke in this poem, you're mistaken. (laughs) In the old torment of the earth, when the fires were cooling and dispensing themselves, sorry, disposing themselves into granite and limestone and serpentine and shale, it's possible to imagine that under yellowish chemical clouds, the molten froth, having burned long enough, was already dreaming of release. And the dream, dimly, but with increasing distinctness, took the form of water, and that it was then, still more dimly, that it imagined the dark green skin and opal green flesh of cucumbers. I mean, it's it's such a striking poem. And then... I, I can just see myself eating creamed cucumbers, the Alice. Yes. Uh, Toklas recipe you have on there. Sure. And how it must taste, the sensation. You know, the, the feeling of cucumber is so extraordinary relative to how ordinary and commonplace we feel that vegetable to usually be. That's right. And I think it seems to me what this book wanted to do was to take those ordinary things and the ways in which the ordinary make into this beautiful still life thing and make of all that some feast of reading and hearing and tasting. And that's what it's supposed to be, affectionate the way the vegetables in Cezanne's kitchen were supposed to be. It feels, it wanted to feel, and I hope it feels very warm and affectionate, all of it. 
It absolutely does. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break and maybe we'll have a sexual joke and talk about Edward Weston's peppers. Okay. When we come back, you've been listening to the food scene on heritage radio network.org. We'll be right back. National Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. And welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Jerkel. I'm here. delighted to be here, by the way. <laughs> Marianne Cause, The Modern Art Cookbook. And, you know, we just left off with that cucumber poem and talked about another sexy vegetable. Edward Wesson, this amazing series of black and white stills of peppers in the desert. And they have these, these curves, these very feminine features. <laughs> yes. And it was the first time I had seen photography as a... a almost abstract you know i always thought it was uh, more photojournalistic it was to document it wasn't really to embellish or you know conceptualize and it, 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 you know images of those peppers kind of changed my point of view of photography and food slash art in in general so having that in there was a really fantastic kind of like entryway for me but even more so man ray who was such a wonderful photographer and visual artist has such a plain recipe. Like, you'd expect something a little more outside of the box from an right. artist like him. Yeah. And what he makes is, what, a Romanian-style eggplant salad, uh, like oh, yes. pot yeah. um which is pretty much like baba ganoush. Very much like, very much like. Yeah, I like the fact that a lot of these recipes are incredibly simple. Uh, I don't like to cook. I mean, Julia Child, wonderful, but I don't like having to go to page 432 to make something that then you made on page 23. This is not that kind of thing. And I think the simplicity of the recipes is exactly what I was aiming at. Simple and sort of spontaneous, the kind of thing that, you know, as you were talking about that Frankenthaler recipe, that you'd make if people happened to drop in and suddenly you'd do it. You didn't have to do it hours in advance. However, Cezanne's the quince, the quinces or pears baked with honey, you have to choose the right pears. Otherwise, it goes flop. Yeah. So <laughs> the right olives and the right bread. I think that's really important, the being able to go to a market and see which kind of bread is going to be the crunchiest and the crispest and all of that. I think that's important, which kind of olives are going to have the most taste. 
So I wanted to write about that kind of thing. The first part of the book is called Reading in the Kitchen, as you know. So I wanted to write about reading as well as about eating. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming all of these artists were pretty disturbing, you know. Uh, yes. Especially <laughs> how they, you know, exuded themselves in their work. They were very particular with what paints and, you know, what angles they took. So I, I doubt they'd get a crappy, you know, piece of produce and bring it back. Yes, I think that's so interesting. I think they had a certain eye for the vegetables, and you would know when a fish, of course, we all know when a fish looks a little dead and a little <laughs> alive. So that kind of thing is, is it's taken for granted. But what I love in the markets, but particularly in Provence, the way all the, the tomatoes are stacked like that and everything looks already like a still life when you look at the at the market itself. And that seems to me really part of the way that you think about the dish. It's going to be something all stacked up freshly like in a market. I like things that are combinations but easily done. Yeah, plus what I know of French markets, it's kind of like how I was taught art. That, yes. Don't touch it. <laughs> <laughs> they, it was always so perfectly set up that you weren't actually allowed to interact with you know, the art or the vegetables themselves. So even that relationship felt really abstract to me. That's fascinating, because if they give you a bad tomato, they know that you'll be back the next day and say you gave me a really bad tomato, and from then on they'll give you the right tomatoes. So you have to know discerningly which people are going to be able to interact with you over those vegetables if you don't touch them. Yeah, You have to trust them the way they trust you to know that they're cheating you or not cheating you, and then you come back. You talk about, you know, uh, trust, but I, I'm thinking of a product that was trusted because of consistency throughout the years, of and course. that is Andy Warhol's Campbell's yes. Tomato Soup, Yes, one of the most iconic maybe food paintings of all time. Absolutely. Unwittingly. Um, talk to me a little bit what that painting means and maybe what that food meant at that same time. Yes, about the tomato soup. Yeah, the tomato soup fascinates me because, of course, when we're in Provence or anywhere and we choose the tomatoes, we choose the roundest, you know, or me, if you like, oblong. Whatever you choose, you choose because you already taste it. And it seems to me that among these recipes, Andy Warhol's uh, baked, their, their baked uh, onions, they are wonderful. And simply his drawing of those onions lets you already see what it's going to taste like. So it seems to me that the tomato soup, which is of course a parody of all that, is also leading you to think what happens when you bring home fresh tomatoes. And, you know, Roland Barthes and those people write about what it is to, to make you feel that something is going to be fresh. It's going to be fresh when you put it in the can. And so the, you know, the market, that market net in which you see the tomato and the onion and everything. Very important. And it seems to me that you feel all of that when you are writing a cookbook or thinking about reading about a cookbook. You feel the freshness of it all every single moment. Klaus Oldenburg is another odd yes. example because nothing ever feels fresh of his. There's I mean, these are large, yeah, too big. iconic. I mean, yeah. eggs. I've seen hamburgers. Yeah. I've seen these much larger than life, but also just made of material that doesn't look like the most tactile yes. or inviting thing to That's right. you know, touch. What is the purpose of, you know, those materials? 
I think the parody of vegetabling is kind of funny and delightful, and I think so much of the Oldenburg thing is about parody. And I even wonder that about those desserts, uh, you know, the Wayne Thiebaud, those you know, 15 pies in a row. Now, nobody's going to eat 15 pies in a row. The kind of parody of too muchness is fascinating. And so uh, I wanted to give some of those recipes that are of those rural pies that you look at. But the too muchness and the too littleness, the sparseness, is also very like important. Like Ed Ruska's, what is it? 16, Precisely. 16 peas, 11 pieces of cheese. Yes. <laughs> I mean, the particularity of, of, you know, talk about measurements. You know, it's not that's half right. a cup. It's, it's these very exacting numbers. Of course, of course. And that's funny, too. Uh, one of the problems in the book, of course, we had to put all the British measuring, the metric thing, had to go into American cooking measures. But that was that was kind of fun, the way choosing the paintings that would go with the recipes you really wanted was fun. So everything was a sort of back and forthness in the book. And I think that happens with when you're looking at any work of art, you want to you want to show what it is in the work of art. What is that when it goes into a text or into a piece of music or into a kind of uh, visual, sensual? I think it's deeply sensual, maybe more sensual than sexual, but certainly both of them together. And the, the reason I moved to France with my whole family, that the poet I was speaking of before wrote this wonderful poem about, in fact, maybe I should find it, about... Um, cooking for somebody you love and the way that feels when under the table your her ankles are caressing I may not be able to find it but that's okay um, it's, it's something about the great sensuality of living here it goes she'd set the table and brought to perfection what her love seated across from her will speak to softly in a moment looking hard at her the food like the reed of an oboe under the table, her bare ankles now caress the warmth of the one she loves, while voices she does not hear command her. The lamp's beams tangle, weaving her sensual distraction. She knows a bed far off awaits and trembles in the exile of sweet-smelling sheets like a mountain lake, never to be abandoned. So that kind of heavy sensuality that comes through all these dishes seems to me part of what I wanted to be exuding through this book. I mean, it absolutely, absolutely came through. And it's, you know, Madeline's All Citron from Oh, Monet yes, that was fun. <laughs> David Hockney's Strawberry Cakes. Yeah. I mean, the sensuality, too, of, of dessert and, you know, um, not excess per se, but, you know, living this very plush, yes. you know, sensory life. Yes. I mean, it... Plush and yet simple. Yes. The simple plushness of how choosing you the right vegetable. Yeah. The right tomato. That's that's the simple plushness of it. And I mean, you couldn't be more simple than borscht. And I love no, that. No. <laughs> Allen Ginsberg's borscht that's recipe wonderful. is here. That's wonderful. But I mean, you can't really hide what borscht is. No. So you have to either love it or do it so supremely right. That's right. Or add more creme fraiche to it to Absolutely. make it sort of French. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was kind of amazing. I got to go into Mary Ellen Mark's studio one time, yeah. and on her refrigerator was a recipe. Xerox copy. It was kind of incomplete, too. It doesn't have all the steps. And, you know, being such a kind of logistical 
an analytical person, I was like, this isn't really a recipe. And she's like, yeah, it is. It's Robert Rauschenberg's key lime pie. (laughs) He's like, you know, he gave you so much so you knew what he was doing. But I guess he lived down in Captiva, Florida and had a key lime tree in his backyard. So that's what you do. You have the tree, you make the dessert. Yeah. Yeah. And he would do it for all guests that came over. And to me, it wasn't a complete recipe. But to her or to anybody that had experienced Robert Rauschenberg's key lime pie... The completeness was going to Robert's house and having his key lime pie. That's perfect. Or like a perfect lemon if you happen to have a a lemon tree or lavender here. If you make lavender ice cream, you can feel all the the weight of Provence when you put that lemon into the chicken and you cook the chicken au citron. I mean, that's absolutely magnificent. You can taste everything that you feel and everything that you see, I think. So have you ever closed the cycle and gone back to the Met with some aubergines and anchovies? And and distributed? Yeah. That would be a great yeah. idea. <laughs> because, I mean, it's still at the museum, correct? Yes. Part of the permanent yes, collection. Yes, I know exactly where it is. Yeah. Yes. Where is it? What floor? What wing? It's, it's in the whole modern art thing, but it's in the French yeah. modern art. It's wonderful. I go back and look at it happily. And they're little tiny eggplant. Yeah. I mean, you know, we get big eggplant. But this is little tiny. Never mind the size. It seems to me perfection itself. And my grandmother, who was a painter, had uh, a ginger pot just like that, which was just that kind of green squat pot. Yeah. So it brings back my whole memory of childhood and eating. I would implore everyone to pick this book up, make yourself that little sandwich, and go (laughs) see that painting at the Met. Um, One last thing, which was kind of a, a wonderful kind of felicity is you you just mentioned that your mother was a painter and i'm looking through here and there's this recipe of red pepper pasta by ed Giobi. yes yes who was a wonderful painter and his daughter has been on the show before eugenia bone and wonderful her fascination with all things food she wrote a fantastic book mycophilia about mushrooms recently came out with the kitchen ecosystem another cookbook seeing how intertwined those kind of brains are i think that's right and, of course, I met Ed Joby through We're Not a Motherwell, and the recipe for Branda de Mouru is, is in here. Her Branda is, is in here. And that seems to me very wonderful. Excellent. Well, this whole book is more than wonderful. Thank you for starting off Thank the you, new Michael. year with us. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.